And please, would you welcome to the creation stage, Alicia Wood. Christianity, a sweet story that offers hope. It talks of a God who loves so much that he came to earth to be with us and die for us. The Christian story is one of great excitement and affirmation, knowing that the God of the universe loves me and you, or so they say. See, when I look around me, things look so different. Their Bible describes a God of hate, a monster. How could anyone worship him? And look around you, there's so much suffering and pain that could easily be stopped by a strong, all-powerful, good God. Yet isn't. And then from these followers of God, these Christians who are supposed to model his good morals, all I see is hatred and vitriol. But there is a God, right? How else did we get here? And why do I feel like nature is screaming to me to thank its creator for its beauty? So I went to a Christian seeking answers, but they told me I just need to trust God when the questions are too tough to answer. I went to another and they said that we should just believe by faith. And then I tried one more person just for them to say, I shouldn't be asking these questions in the first place. But then I finally met people who were willing to have a conversation with me. They told me that there is no evidence for God, and I agree. They told me that if God existed, then prayers would be answered and suffering would end, and I agree. They told me that a good God wouldn't send good people to hell just because they don't believe in him, and I agree. And so I'm more convinced now than before that the only path to follow is that of an intelligent, free-thinking person. It's the only way it all makes sense. The pain, the emptiness, if God existed, there would be more answers. If God existed, this world would be such a different place. These people are right, and it's blind and stupid to consider anything more than science on my own rational mind. Well, I once thought that there might be something out there, I see it now. I see things clearly. And so all of this, every ounce of this, has left only one possibility. There is no God, right? An atheist was taking a walk through the woods, admiring the amazing accident of evolution. Looking at the trees, looking at the rivers, listening to the beautiful sounds of the birds, when all of a sudden they heard a rustling behind them. They turned around and, of course, who do they see coming towards them but a big, giant, seven-foot grizzly bear. And so they do what anybody else would do, who had any kind of sense, and they ran. And they ran, and they ran. They ran around trees. They ran alongside the river. They ran as fast as they could and as hard as they could until, of course, what inevitably happens is that they trip over a log. And as they're laying there on the ground, they turn around behind him and they see the grizzly bear with its paw raised up to attack, to attack this atheist. And out of somewhere within their reserves, all they can think to do is scream out, oh my God. And then everything stops. The river stops flowing. The trees stop moving. The birds stop chirping as if, as if the whole world just suddenly moved. They didn't move at all, and the bear just froze in place. And all of a sudden, a light comes from the sky saying, is this the same individual 
who's denied me all their life calling upon me? Is this the same individual who's told other people that I don't exist, that is asking for my help? Should I count you as a believer now? Only well, the AD says, you know what, you're right. It would be pretty crazy for me to just all of a sudden say that I'm a believer. So that's fair. But you know what, God, would you mind just making the bearer Christian? All right. Sounds good. And right then the light disappears and everything comes alive again. The river starts flowing. The trees move again. And the bear whose paw was raised over the atheist begins to lower it. And with a sigh of relief, they think they have another chance at life. Only to watch the bear put two paws together, get to one knee and say, thank you, Lord, for this food I'm about to receive. <laughs> My name is Alicia Wood, and I have the pleasure of doing the super fun field of Christian apologetics. No, that doesn't mean that I apologize for a career. That would be a little bit odd, but I love talking to people who say this whole Christianity thing, it can't be true. I don't believe it. There's no evidence. God wouldn't allow suffering and all of these things. So many of you may have seen me um, the past several years at Creation. You're going to see me a whole lot uh, this week as I speak on things like why I'm not an atheist and, and sexuality and gender and trying to understand that, as well as some devotionals over on the fringe stage. So you're going to be seeing a lot of me. But the reason why I do what I do is because the reality is, friends, is that we all believe in something. I don't mean we all believe in a God that's a divine supernatural being. But there is something that shapes us, something that shapes the way that we view people, the way that we talk to people, our actions and our words, and the ways that we engage with people around us. We commonly call that a worldview. A worldview just simply is the lens through which you see and you understand the world around you. And we all have a worldview. And so when we look at this topic saying that there is no God, that person who makes that statement holds to a particular world view and makes a particular claim. And so what do we do? If we wanted to actually test whether or not there was a God, how could we actually do this? Let's think about this. Could we DNA test God somehow? Hey, God, would you mind come down here? We get a little blood sample. See how that works, right? I mean... How would we even know that the DNA was God DNA, right? So that doesn't even seem like that would be very helpful because it wouldn't give us enough information. Is this God DNA or what kind of DNA is this, right? What about science? Can science tell us? Well, the problem is that science only has the ability to test the natural physical world. It can't test the supernatural, which is what a divine being is. It does not have that capability. It can only test trees and, and what the chemical makeup is of the natural world, but it can't do anything that is spirit form. It's limited. So science is not going to be helpful in trying to help us understand if there's a God. So here is the way that I look at it. I was a criminal justice and sociology degree in college. And the way that I think is I like to follow the evidence. So let me give you an example as to how I would approach this question about whether or not there is a God. Imagine I had a friend, and I knew that she was having some tension with her husband. 
okay? And I knew that there was some fighting going on, and we usually talk every day, but I don't hear from her. So I give her a call, and she doesn't answer, and I'm like, well, that's weird. And then I decide after a couple days, let me go to her house. So I go to her house, and I knock on the door, and there's no answer, and I ring the doorbell, and there's no answer, and I try the handle, and the door opens. It's unlocked. And so I go in, and when I go in, the house looks really disheveled. I'm calling out. There's nobody answering me. And I begin to wonder, did something happen here? In fact, is it irrational for me to think that something happened here? She's not answering her phone. I know that there's tension with her and her husband. The door is unlocked. The house looks disheveled. In fact, if I didn't, let's say, call the police... Somebody would look at me as someone who was just like, 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 how could you not think to get help? It makes perfect sense to call the police. Now, I can't conclusively say that she is in danger. Maybe she, you know, went on vacation and a bear ran through her house and tore the house up. You know, I can't say conclusively, but these particular clues that I've been given seem to point me in a particular direction. And as a result, it's not irrational for me to say, I think this is the conclusion. Let me call on the police, call on the detective, and what are they going to do? They're going to try and gather evidence to see if they can figure out what happened here. To me, that is how I understand the case for God's existence. It's not about let me conduct a DNA test or let me just see what questions I can answer about whether or not I think he's there. It's a comprehensive case of several different facts that the only way that I can find an answer that answers all of them is if God exists, and specifically the Christian God. How do we get here? The origins of the universe, the big question all of humanity has asked for so long. Why is it the fact that we can even live in a world that's so amazingly fine-tuned for us to be able to breathe air and to drink water and to be fed from this land? How about this idea of morality, this idea that we feel that things are just right and wrong? We may not agree on them, but we all have a sense that there are certain things that are right, certain things that are wrong. How about human value, the fact that we think that there is a value to human beings, or the fact that we believe that there's got to be a meaning to this life? And then what in the world do we do with this guy, Jesus? He seems to turn everything upside down. What do we do? We have, a cut, we have a case for multiple things. And where do they lead us? Where does the evidence point? So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to walk you through some of these evidential points to see if maybe we can have a little bit of a more confident belief that not only does God exist, but the Christian God exists. So with that said, let's look at this idea of origins of the universe. Philosophers, humans, theologians, scientists, everybody asks this question of how did we get here? And many people say, well, evolution did it. Here's the thing, guys. We have a, we have a poor understanding of evolution. Evolution is not an origins theory. Okay? Evolution is a theory that once things got started, this is how the process went from that point forward. But it doesn't talk about how things got started in the first place. 
So evolution may be able to say, well, these things, uh, these single-cell organisms became more complex and these kind of things, but it doesn't tell us how we got a single-celled organism in the first place. So evolution doesn't answer our origins question. Some other people have said, well, maybe, you know, this idea of transpermia, that, that um, life was planted here on Earth from another planet, maybe through space rocks or other things like that. The problem, guys, is that we then would have to say, that's great, that explains the origins of Earth, but what explains the origins of that? We still have to answer, what created those space rocks? What gave it life to bring here? In other words, it just pushes the question back further. And so we wonder about this origin. There was a gentleman named Lawrence Krauss who wrote a book called The Universe from Nothing. And he tried to talk about how because of the idea of black holes, a universe can, uh, and gravitational pull, that universes can come out of that. And everybody read the, read the book and was like, but black holes are something. And you said a universe from nothing. So the book didn't do very well. The point is we are trying to figure this out. But here is what we do know. Whatever created us must be timeless, it must be eternal. It has to be timeless because it is outside of time. It had to create time itself. It has to be eternal because if whatever created us had a beginning, we then need to ask, what created that? Right? So if it's a being that did not always exist, then we have to ask, well, what made that? So it has to be eternal being, and it also has to be a free being. In other words, a, a being that can choose at some point to create. So I think with this idea of origins, we don't have any other good, plausible answers other than a divine being who is timeless, who is eternal, and is free and can choose to create. But what about history or archaeological evidence? Is there any evidence that maybe undergirds some of the story of the Bible, you know, more than just here's a Bible and believe it. What does history say? What do people say that wrote about the Bible? Well, let me talk to you a little bit about archaeology because we actually have a significant amount of archaeological evidence undergirding many of the stories and places and towns and, and structures that we see in the Bible. So King David, you all are very familiar with King David. In 1933, we found a 9th century stone slab at the site of Tel Dan in northern Israel, right at the base of the Jordan River. And on this particular slab, this Aramean king boasts that with the help of the god Hadad, this, this Aramean king killed thousands of Israelite and Judite horsemen and charioteers. This is what's written on this stone slab. But what's interesting about it is he boasts of having victory over two particular things, the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. This is why this is important, because before that, we did not have any extra biblical verification of the existence of King David in the Bible. And now we find this stone slab that's talking about the house of the king of the house of David, which acknowledges the existence of David, but also acknowledges him as the founder of the kingdom of Judah. 
Pontius Pilate, we know, we know who Pontius Pilate is. You know, he's, his, his legacy is, is because of his close links with the crucifixion of Jesus. And in 1961, we began to find some great verification for the existence of Pontius Pilate. And in 1961, we found what's called the Pilate Stone near the theater at Caesarea Maritama. And it reads, amongst other things, Tiberium, and then it's kind of, you can't read all of it. Then it says Pontius Pilate, and you can't read all of it. Then it says Prefect of Judea. This is really interesting because the fact that it uses, not just mentions Pontius Pilate, but the fact that it uses the word prefect means that it was dated early on. In other words, guys, we think Jesus died somewhere around the mid-30s A.D., but somewhere around 41 to 54 A.D., that name, prefect, was no longer used. It became procurator, which is really interesting, which means this stone slab was written before that 41 to 54 time frame when things changed over, but it acknowledges the existence of Pontius Pilate as the prefect of Judea. Additionally, 1968-1969, a 2,000-year-old ring was discovered in Herodium, which is an uh, ancient place south of Bethlehem, palace, excuse me, south of Bethlehem. And this inscription also mentions Pilate. Now, this ring isn't of a, a great metal, so we think it probably didn't belong to him. It probably belonged to his soldiers or something like that. But regardless, it mentioned him Again, and the reason why these things are important, guys, is because outside of some Jewish sources and, and uh, Roman sources, we didn't really have evidence for the existence of Pontius Pilate. But archaeology has shown us he did, and that he actually was the prefect of Judea. Using a word that was dated to right around the time of Jesus and was later on changed to procreator. Oftentimes people say to me, yeah, but what about the Exodus, Elisa? You would think with millions of people leaving Egypt in the Old Testament that you would see a ton of evidence for them, wouldn't you? You would think so. But I went to a friend of mine who's actually an atheist. She was an archaeology PhD major at the University of Oxford. So I think she knows what she's talking about. And I asked her this very question. I know you're an atheist, but I believe in this Bible thing. And wouldn't we expect to see evidence of all these millions of people who came out of Egypt? And she said, you know what? Actually, no. You wouldn't expect to. Why? Because nomadic tribes tend to move things with them that tend to disintegrate easily like wood. They're not picking up chairs and metal and hogging the stuff really, really far that can last for centuries. The stuff that they're bringing is stuff that they can carry with them that's portable, and that stuff doesn't last throughout time. So she said, you actually wouldn't expect to see evidence of them. And even if you did find some evidence, how would you know it was those people group and not another people group that came 100 years later? It's hard to trace some of those things to them. But I think one of the most interesting pieces of evidence actually is not something that is written down on stone. There's many, many missionaries that travel the world. And you know what's interesting to me is when we discover remote tribes, I've yet to hear of a remote tribe that is atheistic. 
In other words, when we go into the woods somewhere, into some, some uh, jungle or forest somewhere where we're trying to reach a people group that we think has never even heard the name God, they believe in a tree God and a sun God and an ancestor God and that there's spirits in the animals or whatever it might be. In other words, guys, it doesn't seem that atheism is intrinsic within us. It seems like belief in some kind of spiritual thing is much more automatic. Because why is it that these remote tribes are never atheistic if that's something that's inherent within us as human beings? So there's a lot of things that I think are pointing us in this general direction of origins that answer the origins question, but also give us some good, solid archaeology outside of the Bible. I haven't even used the Bible that points to some of the credibility of things that were attested to inside the Bible. But what about some other proofs, right? Remember, we can't DNA test God, so we have to find other ways to come up with, with, an, with a belief that there is something that is there. And what about some of these other proofs like morality and meaning? Do they point us in a direction? I uh, was speaking at a university several years ago, and one of the gentlemen that came out was head of the Atheist Society at that particular university, and he would bring all of his friends that were in the secular society. It was great. We had a great time. Um, they became really good friends of mine. We would sit around for hours and talk about this stuff. And as we were uh, talking, I remember one time he said to me, I, he goes, you know, I, I know I'm an atheist, and because I'm an atheist, I can't believe that there is a definite right and wrong because an atheist doesn't have a, uh, uh, someone giving them a law to determine that something is right or wrong. They're coming up with it themselves. They're observing the world around them to say that we think that this might be right or wrong. This seems to be good for humanity, but they don't have a source from which to come from. Like a Christian would have a source, they would call it God. That God gives morality. But because an atheist doesn't have a source, they have to find other ways to come up with morality. And so he says to me, you know, here's the thing. I know I'm not supposed to believe that certain things are absolutely right or absolutely wrong, but I just feel like rape is wrong. And I know that I'm being inconsistent as an atheist. But there's just something wrong about rape. Why is it that someone who is head of the atheist society at his university, a well-known and very, very good university, tells me that he is struggling with the idea of not having an absolute right and wrong, which is a belief you can only have if you believe in a divine God? Why is it that we come to these conclusions naturally? I didn't convince him. Or what about this idea of value, this idea that humans have value to us. When, 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 when I wake up in the morning, if I step on an ant, nobody's arresting me. If I wake up in the, in the morning and step on my ant, we have problems. What is the difference? My ant is a person, and we see value in human beings. This is why when people ask me questions about why would God allow natural disasters and tsunamis, they're never asking me this question uh, about why God would allow this on a barren island where there was no people. They are always asking it from the perspective of why did God allow these people to go through what they went through, to suffer and to die. In other words, they didn't have an issue with the trees being knocked down but they had an issue when that tsunami affected people. 
Why do we think that people are important? What evolutionary theory will tell us is there's nothing valuable or special about human beings. We are just shells for our DNA. We are just housing them. We are just the products of stardust and carbon-based atoms. There's nothing unique about us. We may have better consciousness than some of the things around us, but there's nothing special. We've just come from the dirt. So my question then is, why are you upset when a tsunami kills people? Your worldview, your atheism doesn't tell you that. You're borrowing the idea that humans have value from Christianity. In other words, what I encounter over and over again is people say to me, I don't believe in God, but yet they borrow Christian principles. I like this Christian morality piece over here. I don't like that one, so I'm not going to take that one. I like that, that Christianity says that humans are valuable, but I don't like some of these other things, and I don't like your God. But I'm going to borrow these things and bring them into my worldview here of atheism because atheism doesn't answer these questions in a way that I like. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is not just, is God there? But do we need him? Does our worldview sustain us enough? The reality is, friends, that we are not as good at doing morality or displaying value of human life like we might think we are. And when we do, we oftentimes subvert it in a way that makes our lives better. Several years ago, there was a, a, a doctor, a psychologist. He specializes in evolutionary psychology and human behavior. He is not a Christian. He would consider himself an agnostic, formerly atheist, but now an agnostic, which is someone who says, I don't know if there's a God. Who knows? Who will ever know? And he, uh, this particular psychologist decided he was going to run an experiment on children. His name is Dr. Jesse Baring. And I believe this was in Australia. I can't remember exactly where it was. But he conducted an experiment with five and six-year-olds and eight and nine-year-olds. And he brought them into a room and he said, okay, kids, here's what I want you to do. I want you, you see this dartboard here? I want you to turn your back to the dartboard, throw this, dart, throw this little Velcro ball over your head so it hits the dartboard, and the person who gets the most points gets, the most, gets some candy. Now, kids will do anything for a piece of candy. So they were like, this is great. So he leaves the kid alone in the room and takes all the other kids out, and the kid is just alone. Now, the kid doesn't realize there's hidden cameras in the room, and so he's actually watching this from another another room in the building. And inevitably what they see is the kid starts throwing the ball into the dartboard and realizes, boy, this is super hard. I can't do this. And so they look around. They see that nobody's really watching. And so they run over to the dartboard. And they go and they put their ball on the dartboard and they run back to their spot. Because nobody's watching, right? He does the experiment again. And then this time he leaves adults in the room with the kids. And the third time he runs it, he does something really different. He puts a chair by the dartboard and says, hey, kids, somebody special is sitting here. Her name is Princess Alice, and she's invisible. Although you can't see her, she's sitting right here. Of course, the kids love that. Some of the kids would go up and talk to Princess Alice or pat the chair and try and see if they could feel her, right? But here's what he found after running the experiment three times. The kids who were left alone in the room without Princess Alice and without the adults in the room were significantly more likely to cheat. Why was that? 
Because the reality is, is having an accountability factor impacts our actions, guys. Having somebody that we know is watching us impacts the way that we live. And so when Princess Alice or the parents were there or the adults were there, those kids wanted to behave. But when they were alone, it was a different story. Think about how you drive down the street when you're just going to the store and think about how you drive down the street when you're going to the store and a police officer is behind you. What Dr. Jesse realized that in all seeing, this is his quote, an all seeing, all knowing, all powerful, interventionist, moralistic deity, that is what helps steer people in the direction of good behavior. He is not a Christian. It's a fascinating study that he found out. And we see this actually played out in an art exhibition that a woman named Marina Abramovic, who was a Yugoslavian artist, did back in 1974. She is considered by many to be the grandmother of performance art. So let me tell you what she did. She put on a performance called Rhythm O in Naples, Italy. She placed 72 items on a table, including razor, feathers, water, a knife, flowers, there's a range of different items on a table. And she stood next to the table for six hours. And she said people could do whatever they wanted to her for six hours. And so she stood there. And in the beginning, only photographers would come near her. But then people would go to the table and they would pick up the cup of water and just pour it over her head. Or maybe they would take her and sit her down in a chair that was nearby. So there was some string on the table, and some people took the string and wrapped it around her body. But in hour three, they picked up the razor blade and began to cut her clothes off. Some of them even cut her. And the fourth hour, let's just say they did inappropriate things with her now naked body. Some men touched her inappropriately, and then somebody actually picked up the weapon that was on the table, a loaded gun, and they put her hand in it and held it to her head. Thankfully, nobody moved her finger to pull the trigger because she would have died in that moment. When it finished, when the six hours were over, she began to walk through the crowd, and she noticed that as she walked, people wouldn't look at her. They couldn't look her in the face. She could tell they didn't want to be held accountable or judged for the way that they had treated her. Like they wanted to forget what they had done to her. Let me read you what she says about her ordeal. She says, they cut off the clothes. I felt violated. They stuck me with thorns of rose in the stomach. They aimed the gun to my head. This particular performance art reveals something terrible about humanity. It shows how fast a person can hurt you under favorable circumstances. It shows how easy it is to dehumanize a person who does not fight back, who does not defend himself. It shows that if he provides the stage, the majority of normal people apparently can become truly violent. We need to not just ask ourselves, guys, once again, whether or not God exists. But do we need him? Can we actually function well 
without him. And if we say no, is that an indicator that maybe we need something else in our lives? A very interesting study that just came out of MIT, or a very interesting article um, that was published in 2021, December, from the MIT Technology Review, was titled, The Metaverse Has a Groping Problem Already. And it talked about how in a video game, several women are avatars as characters. In other words, they take on certain female characters within the video game. And what they began to discover is that over the video game, the men avatars who were sitting, you know, in a room somewhere, wherever they were playing on this video game, the men avatars in the game would go over to the women avatars in the game and touch them inappropriately in the video game. And the reason why they would do it is because nobody knew who they were. You were anonymous. Yeah, they can see your character moving in the video game, but you're sitting at home on your couch. Nobody knows who you are. So with, when, because they were anonymous, because nobody knew who they were, they felt like they could do what they wanted. And our agnostic, Dr. Jesse, who conducted the, the, the Princess Alice psychology experiment, shows us to be right. Who are we? When we believe, no one is watching. The last several years have been tough for a lot of people. But even before COVID even came around, we saw massive increases in the rates of depression and mental health in this country and globally. And The Economist, they talk about how from 2007 to 2015, the suicide rate for 15 to 19-year-old boys increased by 31%. For girls, it more than doubled. The links between, I hate to tell you guys, social media and depression have been clearly made, guys. Social media is really causing serious mental health issues with us in this country and globally. If you, if you could spend a week or a day even off social media, watch how different it changes your attitude. But why do we struggle on social media? Because we compare ourselves to other people. We say she looks prettier or he's more athletic or they have more money or they're happier. And it makes us hate us. We no longer can see the good things in our life. We no longer see ourselves as blessed or as fortunate. And we think that we have horrible lives, that nobody loves us, nobody likes us, and it makes life feel hopeless. Interestingly enough, there was a study done on Down syndrome youth well, ages 12 and, old, 12 and over, back in 2011. I want to read you what they discovered when they interviewed 284 people with Down syndrome. This particular study in the American Journal of Medical Genetics discovered this. They asked these, these uh, people with Down syndrome about their self-perception, and they wanted to share that information with new and expectant parents of children with Down syndrome. Here's what they found. 99% of people with Down syndrome indicated they were happy with their lives. 97% liked their brothers and sisters. 99% expressed love for their families. 86% of people with Down syndrome said they could make friends easily. 
and 96% of people with Down syndrome liked how they look. If we were to poll, poll Americans, you think we would get 96% of people without Down syndrome that like how they look? Yet, I know the Roe v. Wade thing just happened and that changes things, but Down syndrome babies were mostly aborted. Because we felt like, oh, they can't live happy lives or this thing or this thing or this thing. Yet when we look at these studies, they're actually happier than us. What is wrong with us in in this world that we no longer like us? And is it because whatever we believe in has caused us to not see value in humans? And finally... One more bit of evidence. We've talked about origins. We've talked about evidence in archaeology. We've talked about the fact that we all kind of feel a sense of right and wrong. We've talked about the fact that we all feel that that it seems like that humans have value because I can't step on my aunt. That would be bad. And yet when natural disasters happen to people, we have issues. So we see that the the human condition seems to point that we need something outside of us to help us live here. But then we got this Jesus character, and now we really don't know what to do. Because his entrance into the world changed everything. The fact that your birth date is what it is, is because that man walked the earth. He existed. We don't really question, nobody really questions whether or not he existed. Why? Because I can tell you that he lived. I could tell you that he did good things. I could tell you that he had followers. I can tell you that he died on the cross. I can tell you that Pontius Pilate put him there. And I can tell you that something happened three days later. And I don't need the Bible for any of those facts. We have Roman authors and Jewish authors that write about those things outside of the Bible. I didn't get any of that from the Bible although we know all that is in the Bible. So his existence is not up for debate. We know he's there. The question is always, who is he? Who was he? Did the Bible just make up stuff? Did the Bible just say fun things because they felt like it might be helpful? Well, here's the thing. It seems as if they realized that we would question these things. And in the book of 1 John, verse 1, it says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. Christ. In other words, they're telling us, like, we didn't just make this up. We saw him. We heard him. We walked with him. We touched him. This is not something that we just made up. And also, he isn't a legend. Not only does history talk about it, but the people who followed him addressed that as well. And it said, we didn't just come up with cleverly devised stories when, you told, when we told you about Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. They didn't just make this up. And you know what the reality is? Is I don't need them to tell me this stuff. I can look at the world around me and I can already tell that we feel a need for something bigger. How do I know? Our infatuation with superheroes. 
Think about, we got Thor, we got Captain America, we got Hawk, and I love all of these guys, so please, I am not dissing it. I'm like the first one there that loves all of these things. But here's what's interesting about these superheroes. Oftentimes, they come from a different place to earth to help people on earth because they possess a power that we don't have, and we see that there's a lot of evil around us, and we aren't powerful enough to fix it. So we need somebody from somebody else to come here with special powers and fix the evil around us because we can't do it ourselves. And we love this stuff. Why? Because we are looking for a savior. We, I see the evidence for God all around me. Not just in archaeology, not just in origins, but in our everyday life, even down to the movies that we watch. I see that when we look to find value in who we are, we look for morality. We know that we need a source because we can't seem to get it right state by state. We can't agree on what's right and wrong, let alone country to country. We can't figure it out. We can't get a consensus. And if we don't know what's right or wrong, guys, then who do we lock up in prisons? What if we've gotten that wrong? What if the people that are in prisons really aren't wrong? We have to know that certain things are right and wrong in order to act towards other people. We need to know that we're valuable in order to be able to get up in the morning and feel like life has a purpose. And what Christianity tells us is that when you go to an art museum and you see a beautiful painting on that wall, and you, your first, your initial reaction is to say, who is the artist of that painting? There's a reason why you say that. Because the reality is if you go to a museum and they say we want $3 million for that painting and you see the name Alicia Wood, which is me on that painting, you're not going to pay $3 million. And I'm not offended by it. But if you saw Chagall or Raphael, would people then be willing to pay? Why? What changed? Did the painting change? No. What changed was the name, the artist that was on that painting because the value of an artwork is tied up with the artist who made it. So it doesn't matter if you have Down syndrome. It doesn't matter if, if the friends in society don't think you're valuable. The name of the person of the artist is already on you and the artist determines the value, not the museum, not the people, nobody else. So when we look for hope, when we look for identity, it's already found here in Christianity. And so all of these different components, origins and morality and our, and our struggle with mental health and our desire for value seem to point specifically to the fact that there is got to be something greater that is answering these questions for us. And they, to me, point toward the evidence for God. It's a comprehensive case. It's not just one thing. I can't DNA test him, so I'm coming up with a more comprehensive case. And it shows us that not only does God exist, but I'd want him to exist. The final question for me is, where else would I go? Atheism fails. It fails people. That's why they borrow ideas from Christianity all the time. Other religions fail because other religions tell you you've got to be really good to be accepted by God. You've got to do a bunch of good things in order to, to, to reap his pleasure. But what Christianity tells me 
is that I'm accepted not because I've done a bunch of good things. I'm accepted even as the failure that I am. The theologian Dallas Willard once said, because I make my living as a university professor and philosopher, I'm frequently asked in so many words, why do you follow Jesus Christ? My answer is always the same. Who else did you have in mind? G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Several years ago, I was at a particular university, and we were speaking on a variety of topics such as suffering and why we got all suffering and credibility of the Bible and, and these kind of things. And a young Muslim, sweet young Muslim student walked by, and I stopped to talk with her. And she said, you know, I, I don't get you Christians. So, you know, you just say, oh, you just got to believe by faith. And then, as if your deeds don't matter. And it was a fair question because it does seem confusing. But within Islam, what it tells you is that your good deeds need to be greater than your bad deeds. And if they are, then hopefully when you die and get to paradise, is what they call heaven, hopefully when you get there, Allah will accept you. But he, he could still choose to say, I won't accept you. And he could choose to accept someone whose bad deeds are greater than good deeds. But the hope is that if your good deeds are better than your bad, they're greater than your, than your bad deeds, Allah will accept you. So deeds are everything. The only way you can guarantee your entrance into paradise is if you die a martyr, which is why you see so many acts of violence in Islam where people sacrifice their lives for the sake of Islam. That's the only way they can guarantee their entrance into paradise. So for her, she's like, I don't get you guys with, with just believe by faith, which is a whole nother thing because faith isn't just believing because somebody says it. Faith actually is, here is the evidence. Do you choose to believe the evidence? Faith is a response to evidence. It just doesn't mean that there isn't evidence. We've gotten that definition wrong and that makes things confusing. And so I explained to this young girl, I said, you know what? I get what you're saying. I get that you think that this whole Christians can just live however they want because they are uh, believe things and, and Christianity isn't about your works. I said, but that's actually not true. What's actually true is that Christians do good things not to earn God's acceptance, but because he's already accepted them. And so any good deeds we do are out of thankfulness and gratefulness for the God that we love who has first loved us when we were doing horrible things. And she stopped and she thought about that. And I explained to her, I said, you know, the reason why we don't want to be in a belief system that tells us we've got to do a bunch of good things for God to accept us is because it means that God's love for us is conditional upon what we do. And our parents love us more than that. So if God's love for, me, love for me is based off of what I do, I will spend my whole life wondering whether or not he accepts me, whether or not he loves me. And this is why people within Islam live in fear, because they never know if they've done enough. They can't keep track of all the good deeds they've done in their life. They don't remember the good deeds or bad deeds they've done at two years old or 10 years old. Does God love me? Does he accept me? And I said, in Christianity, he takes all of that fear, all of that uncertainty, and it puts it in something solid. I can know my relationship with God is good because of something that happened in history, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and we can't change history. So it doesn't matter how good or bad I was. 
It is my belief in what Jesus did that gives me confidence that God loves me. And she looked at me and she said, you know, it's almost as if for Christianity, heaven is God's house and you don't need the key. I said, exactly. We don't need the key. The invitation is open. God has opened up the opportunity for us to be with him through what he did. I get that this stuff can be hard to believe sometimes. I understand that fully, but I will tell you, I have found no other better answer to all of the questions that we have in life than the Christian God. Now, I know I've said a lot of things tonight, and maybe some of you are trying to think about, whoa, what do I even do with all this information? So let me help you out. Some of you might be saying, look, I, I've been struggling with Christianity. I've been struggling to kind of know what's true. I've been struggling to believe it. And if that's you, in a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to come over to the kids then, where we're going to have people to pray with you and talk with you through some of your struggles. You don't have to worry about whatever it is that you're struggling with. These are not people that are going to say, oh, you're sinning that way, or oh my goodness, you believe that? You're a horrible person. That's not going to happen here. If you're somebody who's in this deconstruction, as this popular term is, who's wondering, is this even what I want to believe in anymore? Is there evidence? Is there true? I need help? Then in a few minutes, I want you to come over to the kids' tent. I will be there. And the second person I want to come over and join us is someone who says, I think this might be true. Someone who says, you know what, I, I, I didn't really know what to think about it before, but I, I, I think this might be true, and I, I think I want to be a Christian. And if that's you, I invite you to come over as well, because I'd love to talk with you and pray with you, answer any questions you have, and we have people over there that are going to do that as well. So on the count of three, I want you to get up, and I know this can be so awkward, and it can be like, oh my goodness, Lord, like people are going to see me. Don't worry, people are actually going to be really happy when they see you walk in. So if you're someone who says, I don't know about this, but I want to talk with somebody more, come join me in the tent. If you're someone who says, I believe and I want to accept Jesus, I want to accept Christianity, come join me in the tent. I would love to talk to you. Being a Christian is about being, doing a bunch of good things. It is about saying, I believe in who Jesus is, and I accept his offer of forgiving me because I'll never be good enough to get to heaven by myself. So that's you. On the count of three, I want you to get up and go one, one and a half, two, three. Get up and go, and I will see you guys over there. Thank you, guys.